You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, we're going to talk for the first time about AI safety. Yeah, it's something that's been in the air uh, quite a lot. And, you know, we've not really uh, talked about it much. And I I think I have some views on it that are maybe a little bit not totally um, straightforward or or sort of that mainstream. And I thought it'd be fun fun to kind of talk about uh, what I think about this and why, why I think it. This is partially prompted by uh, a really interesting workshop that I went to at the um, at the Harvard Law School. It was called Computers Gone Wild. And it was a small workshop with about 15 people, including some really amazing minds, you know, folks like uh, Steve Pinker, uh, David Parks and Sue Schieber from, uh, from our computer science department, Jonathan Zittrain, who works at the interface between uh, computer science and law, uh, as well as uh, Max Tegmark from the Future of Life Institute, and, and really an amazing, uh, an amazing set of people with a diverse range of opinions across computer science and uh, law and uh, political science. It was it was a really very very interesting, um, very interesting group and a lot of interesting conversations. So uh, this workshop was sort of chopped up into four major sessions. Which uh, so the first session was about the interface between AI and labor. The second was between AI and the legal system. The third was about autonomous weapon systems and uh, potential regulations for those. And then the last one was a little bit more along the lines of uh, sort of potential calamities involving the development of superintelligence. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think, the, I think there's a tendency for us, and I saw this a lot uh, at, the, uh, at the workshop, there's a tendency to think of AI as being something that's, that's somehow different from other kinds of technologies. And in some ways that's true because we view intelligence, and in particular human-type intelligence, as being something unique. And of course we define ourselves by our intelligence relative to, say, a cheetah that maybe defines itself by being fast. We tend to view intelligence as being some kind of like uh, very special, and we often make it a very sort of anthropocentric thing. And this, I think, is um, this is sort of two ways to think about sort of AI and the future of AI that I tend to disagree with. One is that the development of increasingly, quote, intelligent computers uh, is something that is different from other technological progress that's happened over human history. Um, and that there is some, you know, and that there is some like magic horizon at which things become, um, you know, dramatically different from other kinds of tools we've developed over over time. Um, and the other is that we always tend to talk about, um, I say we that well that as a society we almost always talk about intelligence and artificial intelligence in the context of human intelligence. I tend to, to disagree with the basic notion that hum, that intelligence is defined through things that humans can do. Hmm. Intelligence, I think, is is uh, it's very difficult to define, but I don't think it is well defined by it's what humans do. I think it's it's a more abstract uh, notion than that. And a lot of the conversations that inevitably happen around AI and AI safety involve a definition of superintelligence that invariably corresponds to well, when we can't think of anything that a human can do better. I view this as not really interestingly different from the situation now in which humans are good at some things and machines are good at other things and gradually machines get better at some of the things that humans are are good at. Uh, that is to say that the set of things that we can solve with what we call typically weak AI uh, tends to increase over time. So it used to be that, I don't know, uh, computers couldn't play checkers and now computers can play checkers better than people. And that used to be true for chess and it used to be true for Go and uh, and now it's not really true for for most games like this uh, that are sort of mainstream. I'm sure, but I'm sure there still exist games that that computers um, 
can't yet play as well as as well as humans. This is true also probably for a variety of other things, um, but we also can't you know run as fast as cars can drive, and uh, and we also can't uh, fly as high as airplanes can fly. But we don't seem quite as stressed out by all of these things, and um, and I think this has to do with the the ego that our species sort of has wound up in um, in being the most intelligent things on Earth. I mean, so I think it's very hard to define intelligence, but I think it's not interesting intellectually in some ways to define it in, as once there's a sufficiently large set of tasks that uh, the computers can do better. That's just something that isn't really unique to AI, and it's not, um, and it, it doesn't really provide a, I think, a kind of an honest definition of what it means to be intelligent. So we need to think about this in not in human terms. Yeah, I just think it's, and I, and to be clear, there is, there are excellent researchers who do try to come up with very general notions of, of intelligence that don't, that don't rely on um, on some kind of like uh, anthropocentric definition. But I think we're always going to be somehow disappointed, and we always have been disappointed in thinking about AI, or maybe we would focus our policies on some eventual horizon that we will never really get to in the way we expect if we uh, if we define it as if we sort of proceed in the way that we've proceeded so far which is to say oh AI is going to be that thing that happens mm-hmm. uh, when it can do enough stuff and then we build systems that solve chess or that solve go or that drive cars or whatever it is and then people say well you know we kind of understand that system AI is the thing we can't yet do and somehow this causes us to not necessarily, uh, you know, if we're concerned about policies and we're concerned about safety, it causes us to sort of ignore the present in favor of a future that we uh, that we can't really easily imagine. And I think that's dangerous. Take, for example, a discussion surrounding autonomous weapon systems. Now, obviously, there is a there is a sort of a sci-fi uh, version of the world that we have all been exposed to, in which uh, you know there's going to be evil killer robots. Um, but to be clear, there exist killer robots now, mm-hmm. and these things have existed for for decades. And um, and as a result, there have been a variety of laws passed, and there's notions of war crimes and different things that try to address uh, various kinds of autonomous killing uh, killing machines. Here's some examples of autonomous killing machines: landmines, heat-seeking missiles, electric fences. Like there are, you know, a variety of things that essentially are devices that we put out into the wild and they, according to some definition, you know, target and kill. Um, and perhaps and, and perhaps they don't fit any definition of intelligence that we'd really, uh, you know, that we'd like to apply based on the sort of our notion of robots uh, being the things they're doing the killing. But these are nev- nevertheless autonomous killing devices. And the question is, what's different about those versus other things that eventually have some kind of increasing sophistication? Like one of the points that was made, and the, I should say that there, there were a bunch of excellent points made at this workshop, but the, the rules of the workshop are such that, that, um, that uh, uh, I'm not going to attribute um, any particular opinion. But one of the points that was made that was really fantastic was that there actually seems to be uncertainty about whether or not our worry about autonomous weapons is that they're too smart or that they're too stupid. Hmm. Are we worried about them having so much autonomy that the sort of the the sort of Terminator future happens, which might be the sort of too smart version, or are we really worried about some kind of indiscriminate killing that that happens um, when that we that we can't easily control? 
being able to make their own decisions being versus being able to make no decisions. Yeah, exactly. Or like not being able to, to tell the difference between civilians and, um, and combatants, uh, which is the sort of too stupid version. And I think implicitly in this, a lot of what we're talking about is the too stupid version. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But landmines are like a great example are of this exactly already. Are too stupid version. And so I don't see this as being, I don't see there as being a sort of interesting difference between, uh, you know, regulations around weapons like that. Um, and future weapons that have different levels of autonomy. If anything, it's only going to get better, honestly, mm-hmm. where these things become more precise and more capable of, of telling the difference between the, their sort of intended targets and, and, uh, and collateral damage. So, um, so it's a very interesting discussion, but I think it, like many of the discussions, I think, uh, surrounding this, I, I think the, the, the larger conversation about autonomous weapons is not different now than it what than it might've been 10 years ago or mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And I don't really expect that it'll be different, uh, 10 years from now than it is now that, that is to say, we'll always want to have fluid laws fl- that, that reflect the, the realities of our society and the realities of our technology, but I don't anticipate a huge discontinuity. And the same, I think, is true about labor. Uh, that a lot of the discussion we had about labor was, is the same kind of things that I think, are, to be clear, are very important about uh, you know about uh, displacing workers, forcing workers to need to be retrained, people losing their like, uh, livelihoods late in life, um, and uh, you know income inequality uh, growing as a result of technology. Uh, you know there are a lot of very important issues there. But at the end of the day, one of the things that I find a little bit perhaps frustrating about about these conversations in the context of AI is precisely that they're not about AI. Mm. That almost everything that we might say about labor displacement uh, or that we might uh, talk about in terms of income inequality associated with automation, all of these things, these were relevant conversations to have uh, when the steam engine was developed. That uh, the Industrial Revolution faced almost exactly all of these same all of these same uh, questions and one might argue that the industrial revolution was bad I mean that's an, uh, an argument that one could make um, but the question is is it interestingly differently bad than this than the situations we're facing now uh, personally I like things like antibiotics I like uh, I like the kind of longevity that people have now relative to what they uh, you know to the situation 100 years ago I tend to be a you know a uh, I'm excited about living I'm pro, to be older I, than Thomas Jefferson. I'm pro technology, and I and these are these are issues that we must thoughtfully address. But they're not about AI. They're about uh, they're about the long uh, trajectory of tool making uh, that really does go back millennia, if not hundreds of thousands of years. You know, the, these kinds of positive and negative consequences are going to are, are going to continue into the future in ways that are very familiar to the way that they've they've been in the past, and we need to be thoughtful about them. We need to be thoughtful about their effects on society and their effects uh, their effects on the labor system and so on. But they're not unique, and they're not sudden. I don't think they're part of the long history of of civilization. We'll have more information and links to differing opinions on AI safety on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on Talking Machines comes from Herbert Froelich, and he asks, I'd like to hear about time series clustering. So, Ryan, let's start with a definition. Time series clustering, broadly speaking, is, of course, the idea where we're doing unsupervised learning on time series. But in particular, what we're trying to do is identify, say, regions of different time series that sort of map onto each other in some sense. There are a variety of ways to think about this, like a lot of different kinds of clustering. Uh, you know, the idea is 
we have to come up with some notion of similarity and then we're going to leverage that notion of similarity in order to identify chunks of data that, uh, that belong to the same cluster. So clustering is almost always about identifying some latent discrete label that describes things. You could imagine time series clustering in a variety of different ways. I mean, one version is I see a lot of, I see a collection of traces. I'm going to imagine that these sort of time series, uh, each of these time series uh, is a draw from some distribution and they're kind of independent of each other, conditioned on some underlying distribution. And then what I'm trying to do is decide, given each one of these time series, you know, what is its latent class? And there, we need a notion of similarity between the time series. And that's where the magic will always kind of be because you have to decide, just like any other clustering algorithm, what it means for two things to be similar. And there are a variety of ways to think about that. There could be, um, you know, do they have bumps in the same places? So like you could imagine just looking at something like if they're the same length, looking at a sort of point-wise like L2 distance. You could imagine taking the Fourier transform and looking at its spectrum and saying, okay, these two things have very similar kinds of frequencies in them. You could imagine uh, things like there's this idea of, um, of like dynamic time warping where you're trying to see whether or not you can kind of expand and contract time appropriately such that they match up and have similar properties. Um, and you could say they're similar if there exists some kind of simple warping that produces that. You could really come up with a long list of things like this where you take some properties and then you're trying to, you're going to cluster together the things that have the same properties. Then there's also a kind of a view on, on all of this in which, you know, you have maybe one big long time series and you're trying to find regions of it um, that are, uh, that are coherent and match those against each other. So you're simultaneously trying to segment the time series and, um, and then also take those segments and match those segments onto each other. And again, you're faced with a lot of the same, uh, the same situation you would in the sort of the previous case where you have independent time series, but now you also have to figure out how to chop things up. There's a variety of ways to think about this. One thing you could imagine doing is using some kind of off the shelf change point detection type tool where you, you run something that tries to add a kind of coarse grain level uh, divide the time series up into in the segments based on some kind of uh, change in the statistics and then do clustering on each of those separately. My preference is towards a kind of generative model of this in which uh, we imagine there's some latent process ticking along um, that has these discrete labels, often something like a, like a hidden Markov model or an HMM. And then conditioned on that latent state, we produce some kind of local dynamics. So a very common way to think about this is where the local dynamics are something like um, an autoregressive process. So they're continuous. We view them as being smooth in time, possibly vector valued. And within one of those segments, those kind of continuous dynamics are, are coherent. And, uh, and then the hope is that we can build a generative model for this. When we look at the posterior distribution given the data, then we can discover what the kind of the these segments are and what those clusters are and what their identities might be as well as what the internal dynamics are so this class of models is often called a switching linear dynamical system or a switching uh, autoregressive process and and if you don't actually have dynamics of the latency and you just want to do clustering then you could have like a uh, sort of like a mixture type model as well and these are successful in a lot of different things, and I think we've actually talked about them talked about them a little bit before. But I find them very appealing because they allow you to sort of be very upfront with what your assumptions are going to be about what makes a cluster coherent and whether or not there's dynamics over those clusters and how long they tend to be and so on. 
somebody who's done a lot of a lot of great work in this space is uh, my postdoc Matt Johnson, who has also collaborated with uh, folks like Alice Wolsko and uh, and and Bob Data to uh, apply these models to things like mouse behavior. Uh, and they turn out to be to be very successful for that, and a variety of, of other kinds of tasks. It's, it's just a nice kind of view on the world to say that I'm going to have some kind of latent discrete state ticking along um, that is going to provide my cluster identities, and then I'm going to have interesting fine-grained behavior conditioned on, on those things. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Nick Patterson of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. And we asked him the first question that we ask everybody. How did you get where you are? Well, I uh, was a pure mathematician uh, during finite group theory. And uh, time came when I needed a job. Um, I was married. I had a baby on the way and no money, which focuses one's It'll put mind. you in a bind. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I... Uh, I knew nothing about data, knew nothing about statistics, but I got a job at GCHQ, which is the British equivalent of NSA, mm -hmm. doing cryptography and cryptanalysis. And there I learned statistics and looked at lots of data. And um, after eight years or so, I moved to the States, still working in the crypt world, uh, working at uh, think tank uh, IDA uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, so I did. I worked in the crypt, crypt area for 20 years, and then was head headhunted to a, he a hedge fund. So in the hedge fund, it was it felt remarkably similar. I was still building probability models on data. Uh, they, it was just different data. Hmm. Technically, not so much different. I felt, and I did that for about eight years, and then I decided I wanted to switch to something else, and. I moved to the Broad Institute, where I now am, and uh, now I work on genetics, and especially genetics of human history. So let's start back at the beginning of your tell story. Tell me more about GCHQ. So GCHQ uh, had a in very interesting culture, which I think will be interesting to s some of the listeners. Uh, it was directly uh, inherited from Bletchley Park, which was the British cryptanalytic site in World War II. Famously, uh, Bletchley broke the German enigma, and that had a major influence on the war. A uh, considered uh, view uh, is that it didn't win the war, but World War II may have been shortened by a year because of the cryptanalytic efforts. It was, that's a lot of people's lives saved. And... Um, the, um, uh, the presiding genius at Bletchley uh, was Alan Turing. Yes. And genius isn't a word I've used very lightly. Um, I've worked with a great number of extremely smart people, and um, I think I would only rate one as a genius. My PhD supervisor, John Thompson, was an amazing guy. Genius for me is someone who can do things intellectually that you couldn't even dream about. Mm -hmm. right. Turing was undoubtedly that, like that. Um, 30 years later, 
after World War II, and I was working at GCHQ, there were people who'd worked at Bletchley who were very, very smart people and were still in complete awe mm. uh, of Turing. So let me say a little bit about the technical culture. Um, GCHQ in the 70s, uh, we thought of ourselves as completely Bayesian statisticians. Hmm. All our data analysis was Bayesian, and that was a direct inheritance from Turing. I'm not sure this has ever really been published, but Turing, almost as a sideline during his cryptanalytic work, uh, reinvented Bayesian statistics for himself. Just a sideline. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And um, so... Um, the um, the German work the, the work against German Enigma and other German ciphers uh, was fully Bayesian. You had a pra hypothesis. You knew you knew what the pra was. Uh, you computed log odds uh, from the data, and you updated your posterior. Classic <laughs> Bayesian stuff. Um, there was a little more I want to say about that though. The um, uh, Turing and the, his co-workers at Bletchley already had the beginnings of information theory. Uh, we were calculating evidence uh, in units of information. Uh, we were calculating expected information rates, um, now uh, known as Corbett-Leibler uh, uh, distances. And um, uh, the um, beginnings of what we now can see as information theory were already present. Mm. Um, I'll give you just one little cultural thing, a piece of arcana. Uh, so when I joined GCHQ, we calculated information in units. Uh, information naturally uh, accumulates on a logarithmic scale. And so, uh, one, and so we computed information logarithms to base 10. So one uh, uh, piece of information uh, that gave you information of of a factor of 10, we, we called one ban. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, and a ban is quite a large unit. I mean, there's a lot of information, factor 10. So in fact, we computed it in center bands, <laughs> which is one hundredth of a ban. Mm -hmm. Now, where does the word ban come from? Now, this is a, real a total piece of uh, arcana, but it's really quite amusing. Um, these are calculations originated in Bletchley during World War II, and there was a lot of clerical work involved because the computing was very primitive. And special paper was printed out hmm. um, and uh, printed under the uh, English country town of Banbury. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole process was known in Bletchley as Banburismus. <laughs> but the point is, 30 years later, this cultural thing is still, was still there. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah you know... Uh, uh, my model here should score, you know, three center bands a character better than yours. You know, that was the, the sort of what you talked about. Huh? Yeah. Um, so um, uh, it's worth commenting, because not everyone would understand the history here, that um, Bayesian statistics was an extreme minority discipline in the 70s. Mm -hmm. In fact, in academia, I only really know of two people who were working majorly in the field. There was Jimmy Savage, who was working in, in uh, Bayesian methods in, in the States, and Dennis Lindley in Britain. Mm -hmm. And they were very much regarded as fringe figures mm. in the statistics community. It's extremely different now. 
Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, the reason is that Bayesian statistics works. And uh, so uh, eventually, you know, truth will out. Truth there will are many, out. many problems with Bayesian methods are obviously the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But in the 70s, we really yeah. understood that already uh, in, 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 in Britain, in, in, the, in the classified environment. Uh, I will tell you a thing that I wonder about, which I think we'll, is now probably lost to history. Uh, in 1943, Turing visited the United States, I, I think primarily to talk about cryptanalytic problems with his American colleagues. Uh, we know uh, that he met Claude Shannon at Bell Labs during that trip. And, of course, both Shannon and Turing were thinking about information theory. Um, surely they compared notes, but I don't think we'll, we, we can ever... Totally know. Love that. to have seen those yeah. chalkboards. Yeah. I will say, I mean, Shannon, I think Turing understood information theory as evidence and um, that it was measurable and everything like that. But I don't think he understood, had any idea of, of, of things like channel capacity. Hmm. And I think that was entirely Shannon's, Shannon's work. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, these things are in the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, uh, so what else about that culture at, uh, at GCHQ? The other thing that was very striking was that uh, our community uh, fully understood hidden Markov models and the EM algorithm. Hmm. Uh, the key work there uh, was done at the think tank in Princeton that I later joined. And the key figure there, I think, was Lenny Baum, who's still alive and a personal friend of mine. But uh, Lenny uh, and his co-workers wrote a series of papers where uh, they laid out what a hidden Markov model was. Uh, They described the forward-backward algorithm. Uh, They understood EM estimation, which is the the classic method of doing maximum likelihood estimation in... uh, um, in hidden Markov models, and now taught in every every machine learning cl- class has to deal with this, uh, and um, uh, were able to, had proven that the EM algorithm increased the likelihood of your data. So all, we had all of that, uh, and um, when I joined GCHQ, um, I immediately learned this stuff in a classified context, and we were using it very freely. Uh, later on, uh, I think it's 77, a very famous paper came out in the open literature by Demster, Laird, and Rubin, mm. which uh, laid out EM algorithm. And um, it's often said that that was the foundational paper for EM. That isn't really fair, in my opinion. Um, I think if you go back and read Lenny's papers, um, there's not actually very much in Dempster, Laird, and Rubin uh, which is new. Hmm. Um, I mean, when I read that paper, I thought, well, it's good. They understand a lot. But I didn't, I didn't feel it had taught me anything. I really I didn't know. Later on, uh, there were some technical developments that did teach us some things. Um, there's a technical question about whether parameters converge under EM iteration under all circumstances. And uh, there were some convergence results there that I didn't know until they came out hmm. in the um, I'd like to make a comment on that about um, 
intellectual progress. What Dempster and Rubin really did was popularize the methods in a much wider community. The papers were out there, which anybody in principle could have read, but they weren't actually being read. <laughs> and uh, now uh, some very well-known statisticians uh, publicized the technique in a very clear paper, and people started to use it. Mm. That, that's really what happened. Um, there's a parallel development, which um, I, is striking to me, uh, which is the development of Markov Chain Monte Carlo uh, for um, uh, parameter, uh, for, for, for model estimation. So here's what happened. This is just in my own uh, intellectual world. Um, I was thinking about, this is in the 80s, I was thinking about Bayesian hierarchical models and how, exactly how you did uh, EM. In those, on those models. And I understood that that wasn't always exactly what you wanted to do. Uh, and there was a paper came out by the Geeman brothers on image processing, uh, which I read. I was interested in image processing. That was about 84. And the Geeman brothers paper um, laid out very clearly a Markov chain Monte Carlo estimation in a hierarchical model. And I knew and understood that paper reasonably well. But really, doing new stuff is difficult in science. I mean, I, I was thinking about hierarchical models, I knew about these methods, and I never put them together in a general context. And neither did the statistical community. <laughs> these Geeman papers were very well known, uh, in the image processing world, but they, the, the generality had not been appreciated. Mm -hmm. I think maybe not even been appreciated by the authors themselves. And it took another six or seven years before suddenly the penny dropped and Bayesian statisticians realized, oh, there's this technique and it's completely general and we can do a whole lot with it. And, um, you know, even when the information you need is sitting there right in your face. It may be difficult to actually understand what you should do with that. Mm -hmm. um, so then I joined the, um, I joined a hedge fund, uh, Renaissance Technologies. Um, uh, I'll make a comment about that, uh, that. It's funny that I think the most important thing to do on data analysis is to do the simple things right. Mm. So here's a kind of non-secret about what we did at Renaissance. Uh, in my opinion, our most important statistical tool uh, was simple regression with one target and one independent variable. It's the simplest statistical model you can imagine. Uh, any reasonably smart high school student can do it. Now, we have some of the smartest people around working in our hedge fund. We have string theorists we recruited from Harvard, and they're doing simple reg regression. Well, uh, is this stupid or pointless? Should we be hiring stupider people and paying them less? And the answer is no. And the reason is nobody tells you what the variables you should be regressing. Mm -hmm. What's the target? Mm -hmm. Should you do a nonlinear transform before you regress? Uh, what's the source? Uh, should you clean your data? Um, 
Do you notice when your results are obviously rubbish? And, and so on. And the smarter you are, the less likely you are to make a stupid mistake. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why I think you often need smart people who appear to be doing something technically very easy, but actually, usually it's not so easy. We're able to do it carefully and precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. So I'm interested in um, in your early beginnings in in using Bayesian methods. As as those methods became more popular, how did you see your research change or the interest in your field change? And do you feel like it was easier to find generalities that could that you could use and seep into other fields as other scientists knew more about the methods that you were using? Well, I've spent the uh, first half of my career, maybe more, more than half, was working in a rather closed environment. Mm. The classified info people don't, you know, are very limited to, uh, communications with the outside. To say the least. Um, no, the some we tended. I mean, I still would go to conferences mm -hmm. and be careful what I said and so on. But uh, you know, there was there was some communication. Mm -hmm. But um, most of the time, with our Bayesian methods, in all honesty, I felt we were ahead of the game. Mm. Um, I think the first time I really felt that wasn't true uh, was Markov Chain Monte Carlo, which was um, a new thing to me. We had not done it internally, and uh, that opened up some possible avenues. There were problems that became attackable that I didn't know how to tackle before. Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, you know, now I'm working in academia, it's different. And uh, the whole machine learning community is much, much larger, more sophisticated. Um, and there's more to learn, not all of which I've managed to learn. So, yeah. so also, you're an expert in um, hidden Markov models. Yes, that's, can, you, that's correct. Can you describe them for our audience and talk a little bit about how you use them at the Broad for genetics? Uh, yes. Um, so... Um, uh, over the radio, it's hard to talk too technically, but um, you uh, the the basic ingredients. Well, first of all, a Markov model uh, simply means a model where you have a sequence of states, and uh, the probability of what state you're going to go to depends just where you are now. In a certain sense, um, the model forgets the the, the past. Where you are now matters. Where you were and how you got there does not matter. Mm -hmm. uh, a hidden Markov model is a Markov model where you don't see the states directly. You just get some information about the states. And so um, uh, a very simple example done in, uh, as a demonstration project uh, very early in I, the work of IDA was let's imagine you have English text. 26-letter text. It's all uppercase. And uh, we're going to build a um, what we call a digraphic model. So the probability of the next letter depends just on the letter you're, you're at. A very mm -hmm. simple and not very good model, but it's a model. And now you take English text and you analyze this as a hidden Markov model with two states. Mm -hmm. And you're just completely blind. You just chuck the text in. Not, and you don't need very much text for this to work. And run the standard estimation algorithms, which are, in fact, EM. 
And uh, what happens is the model automatically recovers vowels and consonants. Mm -hmm. Mm. It just sorts out the letters into these vowels and consonants. That was, that was done by two people on IDA staff, and it's a pretty demonstration project of what, what you can do. Uh, in genetics, um, the, uh, the basic structure of, of DNA is, of course, chromosomes, where the DNA is la laid out linearly. Mm -hmm. And now what's in, in, in the, um, you think of your, you think of time, if you like, as simply moving along the chromosome. And you can model um, a great deal of genetic data as a model where um, what happens next in the chromosome just depends on what's happening nearby on the, on the left, say. And uh, um, that turns out to be a quite powerful idea. Um, in fact, um, Eric, Eric Lander, um, uh, now the director of Broad, um, I think his first famous technical work uh, was applying a, a hidden Markov model uh, to in, in exactly this way. Hmm. Yeah. So... Um over the course of your career, you've worked in very different areas. Yeah. Tell me about how you approach a new huge pool of data that may be coming from a very different source than, than data you've worked with before. Yeah, I, I'm probably a little old-fashioned when I look at what some of the deep learning people are doing. Um, I like to try and think about the data and see um, what basic statistics can be extracted. That's at least a, one standard move you try and think of. I mean, uh, can we boil the whole data set down into some statistics that, you know, uh, uh, only a few hundred uh, numbers, not, not mm. 10 million? Mm -hmm. Of course, if you can do that, a few hundred numbers you can look at. Right. Right. 10 million numbers nobody can look at. Right. right? right. So um, uh, there's other issues, though. Um, my first thing I do when completely new data arrives is try and convince myself it's not complete junk. <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, my general experience is that quite often the answer is yes, it is complete junk. Uh, and uh, even if it's not complete junk, there's enough rubbish in there that you really have to do some digging, digging yeah. and cleaning up. Mm. Um, this is true almost universally and I, I mean you know for example my hedge fund which was not a very big company uh, we had 77 we had seven PhDs just cleaning data and organizing it in <laughs> databases I mean and that was major yeah because you know if any of your listeners are thinking that they can play the market by modeling financial data the first thing i'll tell them is the data you can buy will be full of trash right right yeah mm -hmm. definitely yeah huh? yeah so talk to me about there was recently an interesting paper about the game go in which deepmind created a program called alphago that they're using to play competitively against some of the best players in the yeah. world yeah um so as an expert, what's your opinion? So um, I should mention that I am actually, uh, at least by amateur standards, quite a strong Go player. Oh, I'm too, fantastic. I'm, a, I'm too damn amateur, which is um, laughable to Go professionals, but, <laughs> but, but decent by most people's standards. And so enough to understand at least the basic structure of the game. I was truly impressed by AlphaGo. Uh, I played through the games, um, and uh, I don't... 
actually really even understand how how the program can be as good as it is. <laughs> it's really, uh, and in fact, it's rather changed my view. I mean, I really, I, I rushed out and bought a textbook on neural nets because I, I was, I thought, well, you know, there, there's more here than I had guessed. Huh. So I'll give you an example of the sort of thing that's really quite. Uh, there are probably neural net experts listening to you who, who could you know, explain to me how they manage this trick. But let me just tell you, your listeners a little bit about Go. So you can have a local configuration, stones on the board, um, where um, with the actual position on the board right now, it's absolutely essential to play a certain move to save your stones. Mm -hmm. However, if you change a stone on the other side of the board... Now this move is completely inessential, and you're wasting time. Um, so there's a kind of local global thing going on. Mm -hmm. And um, if you don't understand the global structure, you can't understand what you ought to do locally. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the level AlphaGo is playing, which is professional level, you absolutely have to get these decisions correct. Um, I don't actually understand how the net manages that. That seems very surprising to me. Mm. I mean, it just means, you know, one stone change mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. everything has changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, the the, the AlphaGo uh, Alpha people figure this out. Um, uh, there's a match coming up next month mm -hmm. between uh, AlphaGo and Lisa Dull, who's generally thought to be the world number one. Um, I'm very, very curious as to what will happen. I, I think I. I tend to think that Sadal will win. Hmm. Um, the program at top professional level seemed to have some weaknesses, mm -hmm. but um, of course the program may say that the top professionals seem to have some weaknesses. It's uh, you know it's very hard to know. Um, but the parallel with chess is that. Um, the first time Kasparov played a machine, he would run quite easily. Mm -hmm. But a year or two later, it was an entirely different story. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. So you said that it has seeing AlphaGo play has changed your opinions on on this these neural nets. What was your opinion before seeing AlphaGo? Well, I thought that playing Go at a professional level would require more neural net technology than we yeah. were likely to have. Yeah. Right. I mean, it just seemed the problem was so hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I also thought that it would need more special purpose development. One of the things that's impressive about AlphaGo is that essentially it was completely data-driven. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that they had um, uh, very strong human players tuning right. the program. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a big contrast to the, to the top chess programs, all of which, as far as I know, have very strong chess player chairs as part of the team, mm -hmm. pointing out weaknesses of the of the program, and their special purpose code is written uh, to fix it. To fix those faults. But AlphaGo didn't do that. Mm. They uh, they had a, a data driven process, and uh, you know I'm simplifying, but roughly speaking, um, the original data was a large number of games played by human experts mm -hmm. and after that the program is just you know, working out itself how to play better and the whole thing was essentially automatic um that's very impressive mm -hmm. and a little scary in that um you know uh there should be a lot of problems which are amenable to this kind of mm -hmm. kind of development mm -hmm. 
uh, I think it did require a lot of computing time. I don't oh. know if I don't know if Google have published. Uh, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if this was a million hours of computing, mm. uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, of course, parallelized, mm -hmm. but it's uh, very expensive, but never, very impressive, too. Definitely. So tell me about the questions that you're working on right now. What's exciting you these days? Well, um, uh, I, um, uh, my colleague, I work with my uh, colleague David Reich, who's professor of genetics at Harvard, and through a rather indirect route, we began by looking at... Um, uh, medical genetics in uh, populations with a complex genetic history, particularly African Americans, mm -hmm. and but eventually the, the, we're doing less and less medical genetics. Though I still do a little, and working on uh, human population history. Mm. So the uh, the um, the basic idea is to take uh, human DNA and from the DNA structure, uh, learn what the historical events uh, that drove the, pop the population structure that you see. Mm. We, um, our first project in this area uh, was looking at Neanderthal DNA, where uh, Svante Pebo, uh, a very famous um, uh, biologist, geneticist uh, in Leipzig in Germany, uh, had developed the, the the world's first really major ancient DNA lab. He was recovering DNA um, from ancient bones, and in particular, he recovered DNA from some Neanderthal fossils, 40,000 years old, mm. and he wanted some technical help with the population genetic ancestry, and David and I were able to do that, and uh, our team found that uh, Eurasians... Uh, uh, though we think not sub-Saharan Africans, um, all have uh, a few percent of Neanderthal ancestry. That hmm. was the first uh, mm -hmm. major result of our group. But now we're going to, uh, uh, we're doing much more, and we're looking at more recent stuff. We um, uh, David has set up an ancient DNA lab, so we are processing fossils, recovering DNA reasonably routinely, hmm. and. Uh, trying to understand what this is telling us about ancient history. Hmm. Um, it was fairly controversial at the time. Um, yes, uh, well, quite. A, a, we've done a number of controversial things. We, <laughs> uh, our most controversial paper is a paper on human chip speciation, mm. uh, but um, where um, uh, uh, I am certain that um, the process of human chimp speciation was different in kind from human gorilla speciation, mm. and that's quite surprising. Mm -hmm. And we still don't really know exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some remarkable technical data that um, is still not fully explained, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So what do you think needs to happen? What's the next step in the field of ancient genetics to really open up the field and sort of answer some of the questions that you think are fundamental? Well, I think there's be already been a sea change. I mean... Um, Originally, it was very, very difficult to recover any DNA at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. And at least in favorable circumstances, we can do it semi-routinely. I mean, uh, in, our, in our lab, um, we screen large numbers of fossils, and um, perhaps 30 or 40% of the time, mm. we're able to recover useful DNA that's useful for analysis. Great. So, but it still depends... Um, uh, uh, exactly what the environment is. Um, uh, 
wet is bad and uh, heat is bad. Mm -hmm. uh, though we're getting better at this. So I don't know if it'll be transformation. Perhaps it will. But um, what I really want most is certain parts of the world where we haven't got any ancient DNA yet. Mm. For example, I am very interested uh, in, the, um, in the genetics of India. Mm -hmm. We've written two papers on that. Uh, both using modern DNA from India. We have some fantastic Indian collaborators, wonderful people, given us wonderful data to work on. But so far, we have no ancient DNA from, from India. And uh, the um, understanding the ancient history of, 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 of India is obviously of great interest. Mm -hmm. and I hope that we are able to, to do that. Nick Patterson of the Broad Institute. Uh, that's a collaboration in Cambridge of MIT and Harvard. And it's always, it's fascinating to hear him talk about what he's working on now and what he's excited about now, but also his history and the sort of the pedigree yeah. that he comes from. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, what a long view. Really amazing. Totally. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.